You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler alert that if you are a Christian in here this morning, this prayer is for you. And that isn't even just cheesy preacher talk. Look with me at John 17, 20 real quick. Jesus says this in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So who are those that will believe in me through their word? That means those that will hear the gospel from these disciples and believe and in turn become disciples themselves. That's who Jesus is praying for, and there is no time limit to this. So there's no time limit to that, and by extension, that means that those who come after them, and those who come after them, and those who come after them, all the way down to us here today. So think about this for a moment. If uh, you heard the gospel from someone, maybe it was a mom or a dad, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was a friend, a grandparent, or maybe some somebody on the radio or on television, but the fact is the the message of the gospel got to you somehow, some way from somebody. And just like we can trace our physical ancestry, and uh, imagine if you could trace your spiritual ancestry. If you could trace the gospel message from you to who told you to who told them, and back and back across the centuries, eventually you would trace it back to these original disciples of Jesus. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And I love thinking of the sovereignty of God and the power of the gospel that it possesses that that this one message, this one mission given to these first disciples has been accomplished and has continued to be accomplished for over 2,000 years. And it started from this small group of men in this one region in the Middle East and has spread across the globe all the way over here to South Alabama. And so we have a spiritual ancestry. And so when Jesus says he's praying for those who will believe in me through their word, that includes me and you. And that's just incredible. But let's think about the context of these verses, and we find that it's actually even more incredible. This prayer of Jesus comes at the end of his time with the disciples around the Last Supper. The last few chapters that we've been covering, the last four chapters, have covered this last night of Jesus' ministry And in John's gospel, this is his last interaction between him and his disciples before his death. And if you peek over to chapter 18, you'll see that that's where he's arrested and taken from them, which then leads to his death and crucifixion. And so let's get this straight, that on the night that Jesus would be betrayed, within hours, if not minutes, of being betrayed and arrested by an angry mob, Who was Jesus praying for? He was praying for us. Jesus knew what awaited him in the morning, death on a rugged cross, but yet he's thinking of us and praying for us in that moment. And that's just incredible. And so I think it's proper for us to give our undivided attention this morning to unpacking this prayer and finding out exactly what Jesus prayed for us about. What was so important? What was so vital that the night before he died, Jesus was calling out to God on our behalf. 
And that's what we'll see today in our study in John. And so to get a good feel of this prayer as a whole, let's, let's just go ahead and read it from start to finish, beginning in John 17, verse 1. It says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me or given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know them in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So what an incredible prayer. It's a little bit wordy, as you can tell, and so I'd encourage you uh, to spend some time later today or later this week just looking through this uh, amazing prayer yourself. You could really do a whole sermon series just on this one prayer and you could really look at this chapter, this one prayer, as a summary of John's gospel as a whole. There's so many of the major themes that we've seen mentioned in this prayer. It mentions the authority given to the Son and the, that eternal life only comes through knowing Him and that He's sent from God. It echoes what we've read time and time again, that Jesus accomplished God's mission for Him. He only did what the Father told him to do. He only said what the Father told him to say. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. 
It even reflects John 1.1 in that it talks about Jesus existing in glory with the Father before creation. And that the Father loved the Son even before the foundation of the world. It speaks of the Father giving people to Jesus. As we've already seen that God gives sheep to Jesus. And Jesus is the good shepherd and he doesn't lose a sheep. He speaks of the world hating them but their joy being found in himself. And so, so many of the central themes of John's gospel are summed up and touched on in this one prayer. But when it comes to what Jesus prayed for concerning us and the disciples, it really revolves around two main ideas, unity and mission. Unity and mission. Uh, I want us to see that these two elements can't be separated either. Unity without mission has no purpose, and mission without unity can't be accomplished. So unity without mission has no purpose, but mission without unity cannot be accomplished. And with his death before him, Jesus's concern for his followers was for their unity and their mission. And so I want us to unpack this by first looking at the unity Jesus is describing, and then see how that unity then moves into mission. Now, you won't find the word unity in this passage, but four times Jesus prays that the disciples and us would be one. That's referring to unity. We see it mentioned first in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one. Jesus hasn't had to pray this before because he was with them. Everything revolved around him. He was the person that unified them. But now they're going to have to be unified around something other than his physical, visible presence. And he's praying that even after he leaves, they will remain one. But the unity and oneness being sought here isn't something that we get to define. We don't get to decide what this unity is. This passage repeatedly tells us what kind of unity Jesus is referring to. Verse 11 says that they may be one even as we are one. So who's the we there? It's the Father and the Son. And again in verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, and I, that, that you, Father, are in me and I in you. Again in verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. You see, there's a specific unity being described here. This Christian unity is meant to reflect the oneness experienced between the Father and the Son. And by extension, you could include the Holy Spirit as well. So let's just think about that relationship for a moment. The oneness and unity of the Trinity is the ultimate unity. There's no division. There's no tension. There's no disagreement. There's also no forced submission either. There's no bossing around. There is a willful and joyful submission within the Godhead. We have this described in Philippians 2.5, where it says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. God did not force or bully Jesus into submitting. There was a joyful and humble submission, and the same thing with the Holy Spirit. He willfully and joyfully continues the work of Christ. You see, the Father and the Son are completely one in mission and character and purpose in every way. And there's incredible joy in this as well. You can see in this prayer this sense of excitement from Jesus because he's returning to the Father. 
It's as if Jesus is excited that he will soon once again be in the Father's presence with the same glory that he says he had before the creation of the world. And this unity should lead to that same joy in the Trinity. And we can begin to see why this unity is so important when we read verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. See, this unity is vital because, because we aren't leaving this world just yet. We don't get saved and then beamed up to heaven. This is, this is the same world that Jesus has already warned them. They're going to hate you. They're going to try to kill you. And yet Jesus says he's not asking that God would take them out of the world. But instead he asked God for two things. He first asked that God would keep them from the evil one. That is Satan. Jesus is praying that God would protect his sheep. And then, secondly, he asked that they would be sanctified in the truth. That word sanctified means to purify, to, to make clean, to set apart as holy. When you sanctify something, it becomes holy. And this sanctification Jesus refers to happens, he says, through the truth. Sanctify them in your truth. And he adds, your word is truth. This is in line with Ephesians 5.26, where Paul talks about Christ loved the church and cleansed her by the washing of the word. There is a cleansing and a washing of the heart, soul, and mind that only comes through the life-giving power of God's word. There's no other way to clean yourself up. You can try. People certainly have tried and try all the time. People try to get their act together. They try to clean themselves up. But if you're doing it based on your own willpower, if you're doing it apart from God's word, you're going to fail. You're going to find yourself frustrated, disappointed, defeated. There's no 30-day fix. There's no 10-step process or six-week program to cleanse your heart. It only comes through getting into God's word until it gets into you. And we do that knowing that there's power there. As Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's God's truth. It's his word through the Holy Spirit that he uses to perform surgery on our hearts and on our minds, removing the sin that so easily entangles us. It's the word that serves as a mirror for our soul, exposing to us the places where we're missing the mark of God's righteousness. But it also gives us the grace to turn to God as our good father for help in our time of need. And we need this sanctification and cleansing because we're still in this world. Jesus says he takes us, he chooses us from the world, but he doesn't take us away from the world. He sends us back into the world. We're not of it, but we are in it. But here's where things get really interesting in this prayer. Not only does Jesus ask not for them to be taken out of the world, but in verse 18, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is sending his disciples back into the world. And now think about this. He says, as you sent me into the world, why was Jesus sent into the world? Was it just for fun? Was it just for kicks? God was bored. Jesus wanted to know what it was like to be a human. I don't think it was any of those. God sent Jesus into the world on a mission, a specific mission, to give his life as a ransom for many, to defeat the power of sin and death. 
He had a very specific mission. And now he says, in the same way, he's sending his followers into the world. And that includes us. And they're being sent on a specific mission. The mission is best summarized in Matthew 28 in what we call the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. You see, we aren't just saved from something, we're also saved to something. We're saved from sin and condemnation, but we're also saved to a mission and a purpose, that is to make disciples, to make other followers of Christ. We're not intended to find Jesus and then just retreat from society, turn into monks and nuns and wait to die. We don't cut ourselves off from the world or retreat from the world. We have work to do. Jesus says, I'm sending you back on a mission. There is much work to do. He, he doesn't zap us out of this world. Instead, he sends us back into the world as soldiers, as his ambassadors. As 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ, making God making his appeal through us. You see, you were all once part of the world, just as wicked and dead in your sins as anyone. But then Jesus called you out of the world. But then he sends you back into the world to represent him, his name, and his kingdom on the earth to the world around you. And that same passage in 2 Corinthians also says that God has given every believer the ministry of reconciliation. Every believer, if you're a Christian in here, you are a minister of reconciliation, making known God's appeal for sinners to be reconciled to himself. You see, we are all sent. We are all missionaries in a sense. These words apply to every believer, no matter what your age is, no matter what your experience is. We're all called and we're all sent. There's no bench warmers on God's team. There's no spectators in God's mission. And here's why unity is so important. Unity makes the mission possible. Look at the end of verse 21. They need to be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then the end of verse 22, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. This is similar, reminds me of what we read in John 13, where Jesus said, the world will know you're truly my, my disciples by how you love one another. Their love and their unity is evidence that they belong to God, and that's what empowers their witness for Christ. The unity Jesus is praying for is directly tied to the mission. This is not unity just for the sake of unity. It's, this is not just unity because you want to avoid conflict or tension. Unity by itself really has no value. Unity is only as important as the mission that people are unified around. For example, unity in a football team is great, but the unity, the purpose is just to win a game. In the big scheme of things, that unity doesn't really matter all that much. In comparison, unity in an army is exponentially greater because they're unified about preserving freedom. But then the unity that the church is intended to have is infinitely greater than even that because the church is meant to be unified around making disciples, unified around affecting the eternal destination of the people around us, unified around helping 
and leading people to finding salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, the mission makes unity important. And unity makes the mission doable. Think about the mission that God gave those first disciples. To make disciples of all nations. Now, how are those 11 Jewish men going to make followers of Christ in every nation on the earth? Back then, before modern transportation, it was not unusual for someone their whole life to never travel farther than maybe 10 miles from where they were born, because you got to walk everywhere. Um, Not quite as convenient. So how are these, this group of ragtag Jewish men going to accomplish this mission? And by the way, while they're trying to accomplish this mission, the world is going to hate them and try to kill them at the same time. You see, this is the greatest task ever given to man. And if they aren't unified, there is zero chance of making any progress. But if you fast forward into the book of Acts, we see evidence again and again that the first Christians were truly unified. And because of that, they were accomplishing the mission Jesus left them. In Acts 4.32, it describes the the church in Jerusalem saying, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. It says they were of one heart and soul. Now that sounds pretty unified to me. And maybe you think, oh, that's, that's easy for such a small group. But the thing is, this was no small group. Even by Acts 4, the church was already numbered in the thousands there. And yet it says the full number were of one heart and soul. And then in Acts 2, we have this beautiful description of the early church that reflects both their unity and the impact it had on their mission. In Acts 2.42, it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, they were unified around the most important things. And because of that, it says people were being saved every single day. Their unity fueled their mission. And every time I read that passage in Acts, it kind of stirs something up inside of me. It stirs a longing for that to be said of us here. For that to be able to be said of every Bible-believing church. But sadly, it seems much more the exception than the rule. Do you know by most estimates, there are at least 4,000 churches that die every year. 4,000 churches at least just in the U.S. that will close its doors this year and never open again. And why is that? Why are there that many? I'm sure there's some that have major splits or divisions that that kind of send it to its doom, but I believe the majority of churches die because they aren't united around what really matters. They aren't unified around the mission. You know, there are churches that have incredible unity, but it's not around the mission. And it's basic math that if you aren't pursuing the mission and the Lord isn't adding to your number through salvation, that eventually you naturally die off. There are churches that are unified around common interests and hobbies that will die this year. 
There are churches that are unified around a particular political opinion that will die this year. There are churches unified around a particular music style that will die this year. There are churches unified around a certain lifestyle or demographic or generation that will die this year. But I guarantee you that a church that is unified around the Great Commission will not die this year. Not a single church dedicated and united in carrying out God's mission will die this year. That's because the harvest is plentiful. The fields are white for harvest. Jesus says in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You see, the fields are ready for harvest. In fact, there's so much harvest ready that there's not even enough workers to bring it all in. And following Jesus has always been tied to mission. What was Jesus's first invitation to Peter and Andrew when he said, follow me. In Matthew 4, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They had a mission from the beginning. God will surely honor a people who take him at his word. His word does not return void. It does and accomplishes exactly what he sent it out to do. The Holy Spirit is at work in hearts all around us. A church could die for multiple reasons, but one common factor in any church dying is that it took its eyes off of making disciples. It took its eyes off of God's mission. And again, I guarantee you, uh, no church will die that is truly serious and passionate about being unified around making disciples and accomplishing that mission. And Jesus, with his death, maybe just hours away, He had me and you on his mind. He was praying to the Father on our behalf. And his main prayer is that we would be one, but it was because we had a mission. We needed this unity to accomplish the greatest mission ever known. And he sends us back into the world with a purpose and the greatest task given to man. And this mission can only be accomplished through unity. So, church, the question for us is, what are we unified around? That should be the obvious question that pops up here from this, from this prayer. What are we unified around? Remember, unity without mission has no purpose. So, what is Stapleton Baptist Church unified around? There's many things that we could be and should be unified in. Acts 2, like we just read, describes a church that was unified around the teaching of God's word, around the fellowship, around caring for one another, but it all all ultimately points to the mission. And this is something we have to do together. Jesus prayed for the disciples as a whole. He didn't say, Father, I pray for Peter that you would make him a great evangelist, or Father, I pray for Matthew that you would would make uh, him a great disciple maker. No, he said, I pray for these disciples. I pray for all of them. You see, this is not a a mission given to just a select few. There's no starters. There's no all-stars or secret agents in God's kingdom. This is a mission given to every disciple of Jesus. This is something we all have to be in to accomplish. And I want to prep you that we'll be talking a lot more about God's mission in the future, especially as we get closer to the new year because we have a lot of work to do. The fields are white for harvest. Our community around us is full of people who need hope, who need joy, 
and we happen to know the source of ultimate joy. We know the only name upon which people can call out and find salvation, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And it's unity around that that fuels our mission. Would you join me in prayer?